0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China – Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for sub-China access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in Seattle, Washington again on a rare snowy day. It's really cold here. The election in Taiwan that took place this past weekend on Saturday, January 11th, saw the Democratic Progressive Party's incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, win in what's been described as a landslide, with a final vote tally of 57.1% for Tsai. 38.6% for Han Yu, her Kuomintang KMT opponent. While the result wasn't a surprise given recent polling, anyone looking at Tsai's prospects a year ago would certainly not have counted on her winning, let alone winning by such a large margin. But as we know, a lot has happened in the last year. Today I am delighted to have as a guest Margaret Lewis. Maggie is professor of law at Seton Hall University. Her research focuses on law in mainland China and Taiwan with an emphasis on criminal justice. And Maggie is just back from a trip to Taiwan, where she worked with Shelley Rigger, observing this important election. Maggie, great to see you here in Seattle. And uh, what great timing that we could both be in the city right after the election.
0: I know, it's great to be here. And it feels especially cold having just come from Taipei.
1: I know, right? Damn, what is up with this? Anyway. Let's talk about, first of all, this work that you were doing uh, with Shelley Rigger. Uh, was this something that was done in some sort of an official capacity or, or informal or, or what? And what did it involve?
0: I, I think semi-official would be the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So it was years ago when, well, not that long, 20 years ago, when Taiwan started having presidential elections, there was a desire to have foreign observers come over. So Shelley Rigger, Tom Gold from Berkeley, Jacques Delisle from Penn, and others would go over in capacity. Capacity that was organized by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Now they really don't need us to come and look at their elections, which are free and fair and extremely well run, but it's just fun to get the band together and go over and meet with people around the election. <laughs> so Fulbright, uh, the Fulbright office in Taiwan was gracious and helped organize our visits, and we were technically a delegation, but that was glorifying our capacities.
1: So what did you do actually in terms of election observation? Were you there at the polls? watching. Were you there watching the ballot counting, that kind of thing?
0: We got there a few days early, went around, saw the major parties, talked with some of the new parties that are up and coming, which was particularly interesting. Hmm. And on the day of the election itself, we did go to one of the polling places. And there, this one was in a school, which is common. And after voting ends, which is at 4 p.m., which is quite early, yeah. they then open up the boxes. This is extremely low tech. There's A box with a slit in it, and you put a piece of paper in that box. They seal it, and then to count them, they open the box and pull them out one by one. And that part is public, and that was great fun because it wasn't just us there. The neighborhood comes out for this. Yeah, you know, they tell you, "Swan Swalla," you know, that's not right. And so people are really engaging in democracy in a really direct manner. Oh
1: wow, that's really cool. And so they they hold up each ballot. I remember that's like sort of the iconic image of the ballot counting. Well, what's that all about?
0: So they literally open the box. And they have one person's holding, you know, handing out the ballots to the person who then holds up the ballot, says which candidate got that vote. And then there's someone over on a board writing down, like, check marks. Okay. And then they put them in piles, rubber band them, and it gets sent over to the Central Election Commission for the official count.
1: Uh, okay. Well, I mean, this, uh, I think a lot of people have been seeing the praises of this old low-tech low system in terms of its, you know, relative security vis a you know hackers and that sort of thing yeah
0: it, it both has the it's, it's basically impossible to hack i yeah. mean how are you going to go and stuff the boxes when they're under that kind of tight um, scrutiny but also there's a performative aspect to it if you're saying you know we believe in democracy and you can come in and watch this counting occur it makes it feel more real
1: yeah 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 definitely that's that's great um i'm, I'm really i envy you for having been able to to be a part of that uh, Maggie, people in the China-watching community here, I mean, of which we're both a part, tend to frame Taiwan politics every every time a presidential election comes up, really, you know, at all times, in terms of the postures of the respective parties toward the PRC. Uh, if I'm honest, I tend to do that, too. I mean, and once in a while I hear, though, people push back. Uh, on this idea and insist that the relationship with China is just one among a whole host of issues that really do inform the way that people vote. Uh, so give us your sense. I, I, have, I have trouble right-sizing this. Give us your sense of how much of a factor China really is in this election. Is it as dominant as most people assume?
0: I think it's hard to right size because it waxes and wanes. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes the China factor is more prominent; other times it recedes more as domestic issues take the forefront. Um, this was an election where the China factor was, if not dominant, certainly very much on people's minds, mm-hmm. and in part that was because particularly Tsai Ing-wen framed her election in terms of the Hong Kong protests, in terms of what it meant to have that as sort of an existential threat to the existence of Taiwan. So this was something that isn't just being imposed from the outside, but in fact, was also part of the debate of people in Taiwan. That said, not everything is about cross-strait relations. So I think the pushback comes when every headline has to have, you know, in a move that will raise the ire of Beijing or those kind of tropes right. that we get. Tired of,
1: so when a candidate like Tsai Ing-wen makes it very much about China, does her opposition respond in the same way? Did Han kuo also make this about China? Did he uh, engage on that on that issue, or did he try to sort of move the discussion toward other issues?
0: Han Kuo-yu was an unusual candidate in yeah. many ways and he came out of essentially nowhere. He's not someone who's your grandfather's KMT. You know, he wasn't big in the Ma administration or even though he did have some political background. And so it's hard to know exactly what his policies were. They, uh, it's kind of like the anti-Elizabeth Warren. I don't know if he had a plan for anything <laughs> uh, but his uh, campaign slogan was keep Taiwan safe, make Taiwan rich and he really framed his campaign more more in this populist reaching out to what he talked about, the shu sort of the common people or the lower classes who had been forgotten. And so it wasn't as much about a clear China policy. He certainly had, you know, he had gone over to China, gone to Hong Kong, was seen as more accommodating towards China than mm-hmm. certainly the DPP and Tsai. But it was unclear what he would do if he was elected.
1: Aren't safe and rich dog whistles um i mean when you say safe you mean let's not provoke the bear or when you when you say rich that means let's keep investment flowing uh to the mainland i mean isn't that kind of what's in the subtext?
0: Yeah, and when he was elected as mayor of Gaosheng, one of his uh, positions was, I want to encourage the economic ties. I'm going to sell Gaosheng fruit to China and other places. We're going to increase the economy, which in fact, he has a very poor rating right now as the mayor of Kaohsiung. Yeah, and so right. that hasn't panned out as he promised in his campaign. And it was unusual to have someone from the KMT win as mayor of Gaosheng. That hasn't happened right. for decades. So I I think when he was elected mayor, it was not as much the people of Gaosheng wanting the KMT as just wanting something different. We'll give it a try and see what happens.
1: So he actually lost Gaosheng though yes. in the election. I mean, by thirty points. I mean it's nuts. It's like Al Gore losing Tennessee in two thousand. Yeah, um, that was oh God. Um, And what happens to him? Does he have a political future at all now? I mean, people are talking about recalling him even as mayor.
0: Yeah, the recall seems to be gathering momentum and going forward. And he was only elected mayor in November of 2018 because that's so short. So he was barely mayor and he's running off to run for president. And that was one surprise. People thought maybe he would do one term, uh, get some sort of track record, and then be able to run for president uh, based on um, having a record of accomplished something and Kaohsiung. But in fact, the longer he ran for president, the worse he looked.
1: <laughs> so if China isn't the only issue all the time, what are the other issues? And where did the two candidates and their parties stand on those? I mean, if, if there's a, a way to, to economically... Uh, get that across.
0: <laughs> A lot of the issues are issues that understandably aren't that interesting to people outside of Taiwan. So for example, in her first term, Tsai tackled the pension system. Right. And when you look at the demographics of Taiwan, the birth rate is extremely low. And they have you know, an aging population that is not unusual for their peers in Asia. But the population right now is about 23.5 million. The uh, number of registered voters is about 19 million, Mm -hmm. and the voting age is 20. If you do that math, you realize there's not a lot of people under 20, and that's getting even worse. So the combination of figuring out how to deal with a pension system that was quite generous, and she cut back on that and was very unpopular. And then on top of that, how do you encourage people to have more kids, which is very difficult to do. So those demographic issues were part of the debate. Uh, You also have energy policy is something which you don't really hear outside of Taiwan because it is felt locally. Tsai Ing-wen has said that she wants to end use of nuclear energy, mm-hmm. but that means you have to replace it with something. Right. There's been a push for wind en- energy, for solar energy, but that's not a silver bullet. And what's happened is they've had to start up using more coal, fossil fuels, and that's increased air pollution. So we were in Taichung, for example, and it was very noticeable that the air had that sort of gritty quality to that it.
1: familiar Beijing mm-hmm. well, right, right. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. You really do not hear about this outside um, when the whole thing is framed so much in terms of of, of China policy. Uh, Taiwan's politics don't really map neatly onto U.S. politics in any kind of way that most Americans can easily grasp. Is there a shorthand that you could suggest for people to make sense of what the major parties stand for? I mean, the DPP is obviously a little sort of more socially progressive. Right, maybe,
0: yes? You know, it doesn't map on. And and there's uh, a joke in English that what does a, a pterodactyl, you know, a flying dinosaur, and the DPP have in common? The first P is silent. <laughs> because the progressive in DPP is not as prominent as I think a lot of foreign observers assume. So, for example, with the same-sex marriage debate, right. which was um, a, another big issue in Tsai One's first term, there the opposition was also from within the DPP. Huh. Because a lot of the, particularly the older DPP. Uh, members they tend to be socially conservative and that was hard to win over and so one thing that we saw was Premier Su who has been a huge mm-hmm. asset to mm-hmm. Tsai Ing-wen mm-hmm. he really went out there and tried to get more support doing things like recording a video not just in Mandarin but also in Taiwanese explaining basic information because there's a lot of concern about what would happen if we allow same-sex marriage so they have to within their own party within the Greens also try to encourage some of those more progressive issues that aren't necessarily easily welcomed by some of their base.
1: Beyond gay marriage, are there other social issues? I mean, Tsai Ing-wen, in her first term, was trying to gut the pension system. That hardly sounds like something that an American progressive would, would embrace.
0: Well, the gutting the pension system, and it wasn't gutted. It was brought down to a more rational level. Okay. Uh, and, and that was an issue which, it, it wasn't a new issue. It was an issue that was certainly been aware of for years. It didn't take uh, you know economists to figure out that there was a problem with how much money was coming in and how right. much was going out. But it was a politically incendiary issue, so other politicians kept kicking the can down the road. And I, I give Cy credit for saying, we have to deal with this. Yes. yeah. So I think... That was one of the bigger ones, also labor reforms. Uh, Another social or kind of social issue that um, is is difficult for, I think, people across the spectrum to deal with is immigration. Taiwan is uh, more diverse than I think people might recognize if mm. they haven't been there. I mean, you go historically, of course, there's diversity um, that you have, the aboriginal or the indigenous populations, sure. the mean. Then you also had people you know, emigrating over hundreds of years. And then, of course, after the Chinese Civil War, the mainlanders came over and then now you have uh, a group of especially Southeast Asian immigrants sure, coming from yeah. Vietnam Malaysia some white European immigrants but if you want to solve or at least ameliorate some of these issues about the low birth rate that's one thing to do is to increase immigration and there's some debate about how much that's going to be welcome
1: and which side do the two parties fall on on the at, immigration debate? again
0: I don't think it maps neatly on to one or the other I think this is something that is Partially generational, uh, and also that connects to this issue about the lack of a refugee law, the lack of an asylum law, not just immigration for economic reasons, but should we give a safe harbor to people who are coming not only from Hong Kong but other places where they might face political persecution?
1: It sounds like really the only issue on which there is sort of a clear then party preference on either side is on this China issue. Then uh, there was a lot of, of of joking in the immediate aftermath that Tsai Ing-wen should give Carrie Lam a call and thank her profusely for helping win this election. How much of a factor was the Hong Kong protests uh, in, in this election? Yeah,
0: you know, I wish we could do a regression analysis and sort yeah. of tease out all these. It was a factor, you know, how much it's difficult to say, but sure. it was prominent. And even when we were at rallies and, and for Tsai Ing-wen and, and leading up to the election and the night of the election, there were people there from Hong Kong, just couldn't vote, but you know, wanted to be there. There were the black flags of Hong Kong protests flying. So there is a sense, I think, of support and solidarity that um, that you see that's running through the campaign. And there's also fear. Her, you know, saying, you know, we don't want today's Hong Kong to be tomorrow's Taiwan, resonated not just with the young people, but I think much further across the Taiwan population that we've ever seen before.
1: Maggie, did you see this? Viral ad—it uh, was all over the internet. It uh, had sort of a split screen that was going on. On the left, you saw uh, people going around, uh, you know, doing their their routine of going to work on the train and all of the stuff, and making their way home. Uh, and on the right hand of the screen, they're showing sort of the analogous situation in 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 Hong Kong. It was—I thought it was quite masterfully done. Of uh, you know, a excellent piece of propaganda. Uh Was this? Sort of on the minds of a lot of voters looking at 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 Hong Kong and, and sort of feeling like okay this is this is proof now that one Party two systems is dead, and uh we can't conceive of suffering that kind of a fate
0: I think that got traction, and one yeah. part that was really interesting was to talk with people from the k m t which um you know they have been more um, open to the idea of the 92 consensus, sure. which uh, I always get a little bit frustrated with because when you, when I hear 92 conses- consensus, it makes it sound like there was some signed piece of paper that actually was an agreement uh, between the KMT and the CCP. But, you know, in fact, that term wasn't even coined until eight years later right. by Su Kyi. But this idea that at least the KMT was seen as more accommodating, more open to uh, engaging with Beijing. And why, by the time we left, a day or two ago, I'm losing track of time, you know, a lot of people in the KMT, especially the younger ones were saying, we need to scrap the 92 consensus. This is a toxic issue domestically in Taiwan. We need to think about reframing. And I think a lot of that was because they saw how the Hong Kong protests really did galvanize the Taiwanese people to say, we don't want that. And the 92 consensus sounds like a step towards Hong Kong.
1: Just so we're clear what the 92 consensus supposedly says, it's that it's this supposed recognition on both sides of the strait that there is one China, but it deliberately leaves ambiguous the idea of whether that is the Republic of China or the People's Republic of China.
0: Right. These different interpretations. And when Xi Jinping, a year ago, he had a, you know, quite a, a fiery speech where he really um, pushed the 92 consensus. And he did so in a way that the DPP was able to say that it was morphing with one country, two systems. Right. And that put the KMT in a really difficult rhetorical position to make it look like they weren't just sort of, not just accommodating, but almost um, complicit with you know, some of those ideas.
1: More on China in a second, but I want to finish off talking about um, sort of the Taiwan electorate. Uh, One of the things um, we're so used to doing in in analyzing American politics is slicing everything up demographically. We have these categories that we're familiar with, you know, white evangelicals, the white working class, um, what have you. Just now you alluded to a a major demographic shift in in terms of the low birth rate, in terms of uh, younger voters. But a lot of the analysis that I saw uh, really emphasized this generational split. They said that the you know the younger voters had gone really, really heavily green, and that this was a reflection of a growing sense of a of a separate Taiwan identity. Um, is that all? P- pretty accurate as far as you can tell?
0: There's definitely a demographic uh, split and you could see that very visibly if you went to a Hanguoyu rally versus a Tsai Ing-wen rally and sure. that the age was, was clear. And you're also starting to see I think a little bit more of an urban-rural split. Mm. Um, and what was interesting too is how well Tsai Ing-wen did in Taipei, which traditionally of course was seen as more blue KMT and and that is eroding and, and that's, so that's definitely changing too. And even within uh, uh, Taipei districts that would be you know, clearly KMT were actually in play this time, and so we're seeing some changes. I think in sort of the traditional lineup of where you'd see support, but the demographic, the the youth versus the older, was the clearest. The clearest split. What are some
1: of the other splits in the demography? I mean, it's rural, urban, and then there's you know sort of the northern part of the, the Taipei and environments versus Taichung and, and Kaohsiung, cities of the center and the south. There's the age one, obviously. What about, is there a gender schism? Is there, uh, a, an income disparity schism? What, what, what?
0: Right, so the income, and I and I haven't seen the numbers on this. We need to get our political scientists on once once they get a little bit more data. But certainly, Hang Kuo Yu was seen as um, tapping into this. If, you know, if you feel left behind economically, hmm. and and wages have stagnated in Taiwan. You know, Taiwan tends to not have uh, be pretty equitable in its wealth distribution compared to a lot of countries. Right. There's still, of course, wealth disparity, but not as stark. You're starting to see more disparity though between the old and the young in the sense that a lot of wealth is tied up in real estate and so you have a lot of wealth sort of stuck right now with the older generation but Hang you was able to get the people who felt like they hadn't had a chance as much economically so there was that gender wise that was really interesting because uh gender played into the campaign in a way that could get very ugly hmm. there was some pretty clear misogyny which Comments like "How can Tsai Ing-wen understand uh, policy for childcare when she's an unmarried, childless woman who lives uh, right. with a bunch of cats?" You know, and one uh, and that was frustrating and ang- made me angry. But I was impressed too how Tsai Ing-wen uh, turned that around and embraced it. And had these anime figures, and her with her cats, and she just leaned into it and said, "Okay, <laughs> I'm going to play with this." And you, you're calling me the the spicy, you know, Taiwan sister, which is this phrase, you know, sort of la tai me. And she 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 owned it, and 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 didn't shy away from saying, "I see this misogyny. I'm just going to attack it full on." So I I actually think that it'll be interesting to see going forward, uh, because right now there's not a clear. Uh, another woman that's going to come up and run in 2024, but whether she really might pave the way.
1: It was a pretty astonishing turnout rate for the I mean, was 75%, right, which is 14.5 million people. That was what, 2, two million more ballots than were cast in 2016, uh, four years ago. And it's, I think, the highest turnout rate we've seen since 2008. What do you think accounts for this? And maybe can you help put that number in, in context, particularly for you know American voters? Like, I think what our presidential election year turnouts are like 55% in a good year.
0: I would I would be so excited if the U.S. could get to <laughs> 75%. Yeah. And, and that number's all the more impressive because Taiwan does not allow absentee voting. That's right. So the overseas Taiwanese have to fly back if they want to vote, and they need to also still have a registration, an address that they're registered at. And within Taiwan, you also have to go back to your registered address. And so that meant... like the night before the election when Tsai had a huge rally in Taipei, she was saying, you know, I know a lot of people aren't here in Taipei because they're on trains going back to Miaoli or Taichung or wherever their registered household address is because that's where they need to vote. So it really requires mobilization to go back to that specific place. And I think it shows, though, that this election really people felt like it mattered. And we always say, you know, this election is so important important. But people really took it to heart that this decision was crucial to the future of their country.
1: It was interesting. There were articles that ran, I think it was in the LA Times, that ran a piece about uh, Angelinos of Taiwan descent or, of, you know, who are still Taiwan nationals who flew back. And I, again, this 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 maybe mental thing that I have, it seemed like they, they found a lot of, of, of them who were big Thai supporters who were Trump supporters in the U.S.,
0: and how does that make sense? Trump there's actually a lot of people in Taiwan who are very supportive of Trump and that's i think in part because the US Taiwan relationship has generally been good but it's it's very close right now and there's been more arms sales that's you know those have continued you've had a very you know vocal support for taiwan and so i think there's a sense too that sometimes i hear this in china too that trump he's a bully and sometimes it takes a bully to stand up to xi jinping Uh. i don't necessarily agree with that analysis but i was uh, i was struck by how a lot of people in taiwan would say very positive things about trump
1: yeah, yeah. It's always baffling me how that happens in China or in Taiwan. Uh, anyway, uh, let's get back to, to uh, talking about China. The other side of the coin to this sort of growing identity, uh, its confidence in a Taiwan identity, which we've seen. I mean, study after study shows a, you know, an increasing number of younger people especially identify primarily as Taiwanese. The other side of the coin, though, is this diminishing fear of China, and yet, it, it seems surprising to me that at a time when China seems, you know, less uh, unwilling to talk about about forceful reunification, they're more capable of pulling off forceful reunification. Uh, it's surprising that people in Taiwan would be less afraid, uh, given Trump's unwillingness. I mean, he, yeah, sure, he has. Uh, been in, in some ways supportive of Taiwan, but if you look ac- across the board, he has been not so committed to regional alliances, to South Korea or to, to Japan, for example. He's been complaining an awful lot about freeloading by our NATO allies. It's, it's surprising to me. He hasn't pushed back hard on Russia's annexation of Crimea, for example, or on Russian meddling in, in eastern Ukraine. It seems like, if anything, fear should be increasing in recent years. Why is this not the case in Taiwan?
0: Fear is hard to quantify, and I don't think that fear is necessarily decreasing. In fact, I think it's that people in Taiwan are determined despite their fears. Hmm. And one question is, you know, well... Is it a better approach to be more accommodating to China, or will they just take advantage of that? And give an inch, they'll take a mile. So one of the real questions for the KMT going forward is, are they also going to take a more wary stance towards China? And, And one aspect that I found interesting in our conversations there is sometimes, especially people with the KMT, would say, well, we can talk to Beijing, you know, we can go back and we can restart where Maya and Joe left off. And and I didn't feel that there was necessarily a recognition that the China of 2020 is very different than the China of certainly you know, 2008 or even 2012. Mm-hmm. And that Maya and Joe got the low-hanging fruit, direct flights, you know, mail, that was easy. And now it's sort of like, how do you talk to Xi Jinping of 2020? Is it A position that really that Taiwan, even if the KMT was in power, could have those same kind of conversations that were going on between Ma and Hu Jintao or even Ma and Xi Jinping of 2014, 2015. So I sensed fear, but I also sensed being resolute and trying to stand up and find a way to be strong in the face of that fear.
1: That's very well put. I think that's, that's, that's just exactly right. What about the parliamentary elections? Let's, let's shift to that. The elections for the Legislative UN, uh, the DPP didn't need, see nearly the levels of support that Tsai Ing-wen herself did. Uh, the, it's 113 seats. I think 61 of them are now held, uh, by the DPP, and that's down a bit.
0: Yes, the DPP lost seven seats. There's a total of 113 seats, and this is getting a little inside baseball. Uh, so I'll cool make point. it. So there's this seven. This is Seneca. We're all I, about I know. Baseball. This gets me all excited. I can geek out on Taiwan politics. So the uh, 113 total seats, 73 of which are single member districts. You know, just sort of okay. you have. Uh, lines for certain location. And then you have 34 that are from these closed party lists. So people both vote for someone to represent their district, and then they also vote for a party. Hmm. And then you have six of the seats that are set aside for the indigenous populations. And that's um those are also divided up in particular okay. ways. Now the DPP won sixty one. That's down seven seats from where they were in twenty sixteen. The KMT gained three seats. But the real story is what about those other seats? Sure. Where did they go? One of the big exciting um, new factors is the role of Ko Wen je the so mayor sure. Ko or Ko uh, as mayor of Taipei, and he formed a third or another party. And that just was in August. It was several months ago. And he's been an independent. So he created a party, the Taiwan People's Party. And best we can tell, they don't stand for anything except being practical and trying to deal with issues. And we met with some of the people who work in the the party and we're trying to pin them down on policies. And they kept saying, well, you know, we're going to need to see the fang an. We'll need to see the proposal on everything. And we just want to put aside a little bit this issue of independence or unification and get stuff done. Right, and that party did really well. They got um, they got five seats, right. and for just coming on the scene, that's really interesting. The speculation is that Kuh is going to run in twenty twenty four, and if he does run, and if he runs as the. T- for the TPP, we could have a real three-way race in four years, as compared with this year where James Song was running, but he only got a few percent. And right. he's yeah. run five times so now yeah, or something. So he's that run was kind every of...
1: election that they since they've
0: and maybe next one we don't know. Maybe he'll try again. So the TPP, that's one of the big news stories. Uh, you also had uh, the uh, the Shidai Liliang, Li Liang or the NPP, and they gained. Uh, they are down, I think, but they have three seats, so they're still in the mix. And you also also have a new party that won one of the district seats called the State Building Party. They're green, so they're more on the DPP side, but they're taking a stronger position on Taiwan independence and bringing to some of that voice that Tsai Ing-wen has not been. Publicly saying because she's taken a relatively centrist position, so these these other parties aren't crucial right now because the DPP has a majority, but they're getting to be I think more of the conversation.
1: And so, do you think the TPP is going to take votes from disaffected KMT? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me that they with that sort of technocratic bent, uh, with their uh, Taipei focus, with I mean, they're they're drawn from a gen, gen, generally kind of an urban and educated class. A lot of the disaffected, uh, you know, Weishan and the KMT stalwarts would be attracted to that kind of a pragmatic party. I mean, I I can imagine.
0: Yeah. And they're so new that I think right now the TPP can kind of get away with with without having clear positions. Yeah. I don't think you can run for president um, of Taiwan, of the Republic of China, and not have a position on cross-strait relations. So sometime in the coming years, they should be pushed on that because that... Voters need to know where they stand, at least vaguely. Uh, the KMT too is is going through some serious uh, soul searching and. Internal debates. I was just saying it'd be an interesting reality series to watch the gloves come off because their chair, their chairman has resigned, which is not surprising right. given their loss. And there's a real question about who will be the next chairperson, probably chairman, and, um, and whether the younger generation might really shake things up because there is, um, not just a generational split in the electorate, but within the KMT.
1: Hmm. I can imagine it would be so. Just now you alluded to Tsai Ing-wen herself as being a relative centrist. Of course, the sort of pro-Beijing folks and, and of course, the the PRC media itself paints her as some sort of extremist, uh, a pro-independence extremist. That is not the way uh, I think that people who really know Taiwan politics understand her at all. Give us a better sense of who uh, Tsai Ing-wen is as a politician in terms of uh, her polarity. She's always struck me as actually quite moderate.
0: Yeah, if you read what the Taiwan Affairs Office said in Beijing the day after the election, you know, she was engaging in all sorts of deceit and trickery and there were foreign forces. And of course, they're going to they're going to always say those things. But she is... uh, I mean, I, I don't know her personally. I've met her, but you know, I don't want to try to get too much into her brain. But definitely she is a cautious uh, person who is extremely smart uh, and very savvy. Uh, the Hong Kong protests, you know, that helped her. Other external events certainly helped her campaign. But I also give her credit for being a very smart politician. you know, She has navigated very tricky political waters, and that's not just because of events outside of her control. She's also been able to find a way to mollify the more extreme elements of the DPP and bring in, I think, voters who are, you know, maybe even would have voted more for Mayor Kerr or someone else by giving this sense of having a very steady hand. Uh, she's basically unflappable i was saying if if i was in one of these mission impossible movies where there is a a bomb with two wires and you have to cut one and not have you know cut the other i think i'd have tsai like she is really <laughs> steady under pressure and um and that's something which right now is important to taiwan absolutely
1: um, do you sense that now that she has she taiwan like the united states has a two term presidential limit uh so she's not going to be running for reelection uh Is this an opportunity for her now that now that she has, um, you know, one, broadly the support of people who are sort of uh, more pro-independence leaning, uh, placated them in in a sense, but now can she tack back toward the center?
0: And she's in her early 60s. So it will be interesting to see what kind of person she is as an ex-president because she could be involved in Taiwan politics, you know, long after this. And there's, you know, there's always a question as a second-term president. And the one hand, you aren't running for re-election, so you have freedom, but you're also quickly painted as a lame duck. And there's um, thus, I think, a push for her to use the momentum of this Huge win in the campaign to try to push forward on some of the issues that she might want to push forward on. What, and, what are those and issues? that's but this is this is this is one of these questions. So one one issue that is definitely um, going to be in continuing to be in the news is how to respond to sort of infiltration from China or you know. And this there was an anti infiltration law that was passed in late December, and it's only twelve articles long. It's actually quite brief, but it's trying to get at people who are essentially being co-opted and bought off by the Chinese government, and then are using this to affect uh, domestic politics in Taiwan. There, uh, The KMT uh, was very critical of this, saying that people who are working in China, who have business there, or have a lot of relations, that they could run afoul of this law without meaning to or without doing anything too terrible. Uh, I think that's overblown, but I do have some concerns anytime that a law leaves a lot of discretion in the hands of prosecutors then you hope that you have good thoughtful prosecutors but that law will be in effect longer than just you know the next few years
1: does it what require disclosure things like that it's
0: it's 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 not that far so the next step is whether there's going to be some sort of foreign agent sort of registration Registration law and they really need a whole set of laws and this was seen as that first step so I think that's the next conversation how do you create a more um, comprehensive legal scheme to deal with foreign intervention because, you know, it, it, Taiwan has freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. So on the one hand, people who are just pro-China, that's allowed. That's that's sure. called freedom of, you know, speech or I want to go to a meeting of pro-China folks. Great, do it. But that's different from someone who's being paid by the Chinese government to somehow undermine elections in a, you know, in a nefarious manner, and how you get at that in a manner using the law, is really difficult, and that's a struggle right now.
1: We saw some of that more nefarious manifestation though in this ele- in the run up to this election, did we not? At least that's that's what's been reported. What were you able to, to sort of ferret out? What do you know? Uh, to what extent China? attempted to interfere in the outcome of this election.
0: There's there's a debate, too, about how much that was. And certainly there's media groups in, in Taiwan that have direct links, not just to China, but to you know, Chinese government in one way or another through business dealings. And I, I one of the more interesting meetings that we went to was with a new organization called the Taiwan Fact Check Center. Mm. And it's an NGO, um, but working closely with the Tsai government, and you also have have them working uh, with actually Facebook and Google, which is fascinating to see. So for example, um, what they do is look at misinformation on Facebook. It's it's harder online and some of the private messaging services sure. because those yeah. are closed groups. But if they see something, whether it be about uh, food safety or health or politics, that's untrue, they'll write a report and then they've gotten, so Facebook will gray out that post and have a link and say, this has been flagged as inaccurate. You can click on this link to see the report why and sometimes they'll even get it so people who have forward that forwarded that post they'll get pinged that report and so it it doesn't solve the problem but hopefully it'll staunch the flow of some of the worst of the misinformation but it's a new organization um, and it's fighting a mountain of Of disinformation. So I'm not sure how much they can move the needle, but it's an exciting initiative. Sounds like
1: Facebook's doing a whole lot more to protect Taiwan democracy than American.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. When we heard that, our ears picked up. And and too, you look at the Tsai administration and Audrey Audrey Tang, Mm -hmm. um, who Mm -hmm. is the digital minister and a former hacker from the Sunflower Movement. And I, I think that was brilliant to take someone who understands how computers really work. And 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 bring that person into the government.
1: Well, our senators clearly understand technology <laughs> well here in America. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I uh, f- there's just uh, a lot more to be talked about. But let's have you on again and and uh, bring you back and, and and check in with you again on how the Tide Administration is doing. Uh, and uh, you know, thanks for so much for taking the time. Uh, I know that you must be terribly jealous. <laughs> <just got> <laughs> Seattle has good coffee. Yeah, they do. Let's go get some. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm ready for some before our, our little dinner thing. Uh, but first, let's move on to recommendations. I, I first want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. Access. This thing is just chock full of great reads on China, delivered right to your inbox every weekday. So Jeremy, Lucas, Anthony, Jiayin, they're working really hard to bring you this product. It is terrific value for money sign up spread the word show your support now on recommendations. Maggie, what do you have for us?
0: So I, I actually went to high school in Portland, Oregon, and I, my oh, parents wow. are there, so I, I'm often in the Pacific Northwest, so I, I think I should give some Pacific Northwest recommendations. Yeah. And I was listening to Slater Kinney's latest album, oh. and um, having been in Portland in the 90s, and they're a great band, and uh, proud of the Riot Girl movement, sure. and so I think that's always fun to pull up one of their new or older albums. Uh, also, I would say Powell's book. If you ever go to Portland, what's
1: up with all the great bookstores in Portland?
0: Well, Powell's has been a great bookstore for decades, sure. and even if you can't get to Portland, um, you can go online instead of buying through Amazon and and go to and support an independent bookstore. But it's 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 just a fantastic place.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's my my one impression of one, one of my many impressions of Portland, having been there. Uh, is that there were just seem to be so many good used bookstores there. Mm-hmm. I mean it's not like that it's got that many. I mean there's what Reed and the mm-hmm. University of Oregon and Jean, but what?
0: it's it's just Portland is Portland's a great town. I mean okay. it's sometimes the Portlandia hits it right that it can be a little bit uh, over <laughs> over Portland. Uh but uh but I, I do think that it's uh the food is great, the books are great, um and I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I spent one more time there. I haven't been there much. Um, my my recommendation for this week is a really profound, I think, a really important book called "The Light That Failed: A Reckoning." Uh, it was apparently re released as "The Light That Failed: Why the West Is Losing the Fight for Democracy." That's probably the U.S. version of it. Um, if you want to make sense, if you want to try and make sense of this, this kind of the tragic arc of the last three decades since the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, um, seeing such backslide into, um. You know, away from democracy. I mean, today we're talking about Taiwan as such a uh, sort of shining example of of, of, of successful democracy. But, uh, you know, if you look all over Central and Eastern Europe, we're seeing, you know, a, a lot of deep, deep, deep problems. Uh, the author is Ivan Krastev and, and St- Stephen Holmes, who are two political scientists. Uh, Ivan Krastev is, is Bulgarian. Uh, Stephen Holmes teaches at NYU. Uh They've grasped something that I think is really utterly profound about the post-Soviet transitions uh, and and the varied approaches that the states have taken. Um, Their theory is about different approaches to uh, to the imperative to imitate us. That you know, after the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, we basically said, "Okay, you know, we're so wedded to this teleological vision, so liberal Western capitalism has triumphed. Now you guys have to get on board," and that doesn't fall easily on on the ears of a, of a lot of people it's just not something that there's a you know big historical chasm to be leapt there and we're pretty cavalier about it and uh so i it lays a lot of the blame i think on our lack of 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 cognitive empathy and uh, uh, it res- really resonated with with me. Anyway, um,
0: we need to get you to Taiwan to restore your faith in democracy yeah, because yeah. It, it it was it gives you a good shot of adrenaline to think it really can work and make people get out there. Yeah,
1: no, I I, I do I I, I like I, I definitely I mean I've spent quite a bit of time in Taiwan and it, it's always impressed me. Anyway, um, they they I think they lay out their evidence really well. It's very persuasive. Uh, they drive their point to him very elegantly. Uh, along the way, it's just full of all these trenchant observations. Um, I think a lot of them are quite worthy of a whole book, you know, of, of themselves. But um, they f- they finished the book talking about China, and that is really interesting because these are not China specialists. But I think what they say about China is really quite, quite cogent and very clear-eyed. Um, I, I don't know um, how well they know Chinese history, but they sure do know other histories, And that is often the part, the problem I think with China watchers is that they're so focused on Chinese history. They, they just don't, they can't contextualize. They don't, they don't put it in a broader and they don't recognize um, how much contingency is in play uh, with, with other histories. So anyway, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. It's, it, it'll take just a couple of days to get through for, for any reasonably fast reader. So I highly recommend it. The light that failed. Maggie, thanks again. Um, It's been just a great pleasure. I hope to have you back again soon.
0: Anytime. Thanks. All right.
1: Thank you very much. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, The Saishin Seneca Business Brief, The Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and top for top. The Middle Earth Podcast about the culture industry in China, and Strangers in China. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming very soon. Big, big exciting things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.